Hey everyone, do you have goals to be more creative or to be a douche? Today's book is Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, <laughs> the perfect book for any aspiring innovator. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and one time when I couldn't pay my phone bill in my early 20s, I went to the Apple store every day for two weeks to check my email, and I've been a fan ever since. And I'm David Vance. I don't have stories about paying my phone bill in my early 20s because I wasn't born during the Great Depression. Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson gives tips on creativity from the life of the famous entrepreneur. Now, some have said we're just trying to promote our podcast by sucking up to Apple, whose MacBook Pro now comes with an immersive retina display, longer battery life, and up to 64 gigabytes of memory. Who knew a common computer could be so uncommon? And this is the book pile. Can I read a couple of fun reviews from this last week? Please do. I don't need your permission, Dave. <laughs> Who were you asking? So this one says, I love the subject line. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. This is a great podcast, a great mix of informative and humorous. And this is Ball is Life 88889. <laughs> JP Amazing says, among other things, as an aspiring writer, anything I can learn about books and writing them is a godsend. I'm only on episode two, but I'm loving the book pile so much. Thank you guys so much. And thank you, JP Amazing. I would love it if, it, if he uh, left like a follow-up review that was like, all right, I heard the JFK jokes on episode three and I'm out. <laughs> so thank you for your reviews. Keep sending them in. Okay, and without further ado, here are our favorite lessons from Steve Jobs. Number one, make stuff you like, a.k.a. don't pander. So a little story. When the iPod came out, it was this huge success. And so Microsoft came out with its own MP3 player called the Zune, and it was a total disaster. And Steve Jobs was guessing why it was. And he said, the Zune was crappy because the people at Microsoft don't really love music or art the way we do. Uh, okay, Steve, then you tell me how they made Clippy the paperclip. And he goes on to say, <laughs> we won because we personally love music. We made the iPod for ourselves, and when you're doing something for yourself, you're not going to cheese out. <laughs> Which, imagine saying something that cool and then ending it with cheese out. <laughs> but I love the broad point he's making, that there's so much value in making something for yourself rather than trying to pander to someone else. There's actually this whole book about it called The User Method that basically says, make the thing you want because you're not actually very unique. You know, chances are millions of people share your taste. So for instance, at Pixar, when they made Toy Story, they didn't try to pander to kids. They just made the movie that they themselves wanted to watch. And then John Lasseter got fired for giving employees the long hugs that he himself wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love the, uh, the, the advice that he got from the marketing genius, Mike Markala, who said, never start a company with the goal of getting rich. Your goal should be making something you believe in and making a company that will last. And that is something that you see over and over in this book and the story of his life that he was never one for like exquisite things or the, the crazy lifestyle. For most of his life, he just slept on a mattress in his, in his room. <laughs> I mean, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> the, the difference is that he had three commas in his paycheck. <laughs> After he was sort of thrown out for an, from Apple and then returned later, he only worked on a salary of a dollar per year. 
So it was never it was never about the money for him, even though he mm. could have had it freely. Although, didn't he then go back and demand like a huge stock option package? It sounds like <laughs> it just shows uh, like a great example of how controlling he was. Because the first they came to him with a stock option, and he was like, "No, no, I'm not. If you pay me now, then all the employees will think that I came back here just to get rich." That's a direct quote. <laughs> but then later, somebody else came to him with a stock option and then he countered it and asked for twice that amount because <laughs> he was basically like well now that this is on the table but i love that the story that remains in your head is the fact that he had a one dollar salary it's like when the nyu film students are like yeah i broke into the industry by shooting a short film with just my camera my friends as crew and my parents extravagant penthouse apartment in manhattan <laughs> there is kind of a danger to the user method which is if everyone on your team has the same taste, then you can miss out on big opportunities. So for example, Steve Jobs didn't really exercise, although he did burn calories running away from his daughter. And so he almost killed the iPod <laughs> mini, which is, the mini is this product that's great for people who exercise and he almost killed it because he didn't exercise. But he had coworkers who did work out and they kept the mini alive because they saw its value and then it became a huge hit. So if everyone on your team has exactly the same tastes or is exactly the same in some way, you're probably going to miss out on good opportunities. Uh, and in fact, uh, Caroline Criado Perez has this whole book called Invisible Women about how when most of your decision makers are men, you miss out on all the problems faced by women. I don't think that's true. I've never seen that happen. <laughs> All right. Lesson two. Intuition is better than intelligence. Is that what you wrote at the top of your SATs? <laughs> so that's a direct quote from Steve Jobs. As a teenager, Steve Jobs, he walked into the headquarters of Atari and told the person working the front desk that he wouldn't leave until they gave him a job. Right. I don't think that I've heard a version of this story that happened past 1990. Like, I just <laughs> I don't think that you could do this sort of thing. Can you imagine just going into an airport and going, you give me a job or I'm not going anywhere? <laughs> you do that at Lockheed Martin and just get drone striked. Yeah. <laughs> Or at Raytheon and just get drone striked. At the very or at least. Google and just get drone striked. <laughs> at the very least. Is it drone struck? What is the past tense? I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Obama. <laughs> <laughs> so they actually got the head of Atari, and the he, the head of Atari basically said, "I like your style, kid. It's not that far. <laughs> I off, like your moxie. But it is <laughs> the, it was that type of story, and he became <laughs> he became a mentor of of Steve Jobs." So it was at Atari that he learned to appreciate the value of bringing intuitive design to customers with his experience with the Star Trek video game. Especially these these early video games, that they had to be intuitive because nothing like it ever existed before. So there was no manual. And you'll see that throughout Steve Jobs' life, he has this appreciation for the, the purity of, of simplicity. For this Star Trek arcade game, it was just insert quarter avoid Klingons <laughs> and I would I would what love a powerful it if, life lesson if that was Steve Jobs uh, epitaph insert quarter avoid Klingons <laughs> 
Pong was first introduced as an ar- arcade video game. It was the second arcade game ever, but it was the first one in a real wow. public situation because the, the 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 first one was technically at Stanford University, but the first one really available to the public was available in a small bar in Sunnyvale, California, which soon after that would become a comedy club called The Country Store, which then in the early 2000s turned into Rooster Tea Feathers, which is my hometown comedy club. So I can say that I have bombed at the first public place where an arcade game was. I'm going to put that on my bio. (laughs) But this intuitive design, I feel like Nintendo did this with the Wii. After creating these more and more complex video game controllers, Nintendo's so dumb. They thought people had three hands. Did you ever own an N64? (laughs) So I love that with the Wii, it's it's very intuitive. You pick up the controller, you pretend it's a, a tennis racket, and you throw it directly at your 80-inch flat screen. I think that was the, <laughs> the story of the Wii. So you could really only play it once, but it was so intuitive that time. <laughs> but you see this in, in all the Apple products. They are made so that you can just pick them up and instinctively, intuitively know what to do. Do you remember the first yeah, you, time? The idea behind every Apple product is for it to be so intuitive that a baby could get addicted to it, which they do. <laughs> as soon as you are just totally messing with the neural psychology of a generation of kids, you know you've hit the product sweet spot. <laughs> you know you can become the most valuable company in the world. Do you remember <laughs> the first time that you held an iPhone that you used an iPhone? Yeah, I I think my dad got one in the first year or two after it came out. Or are you looking for like my emotional response? No, that was a that was a fascinating story. So when I (laughs) went to the Apple store for the first time, I'd heard about it and I I picked one up and I hit one of the apps. I didn't know it was a game. I I clicked on it and it was this game, but then I, I didn't know how to get back to where all the apps were. It only took me like 20 seconds to figure out that there was just the one button on the phone. But Mm. for that initial 20 seconds, I was like, what, so you just, you hit an app and you're on this forever? Like, what a dumb design. Like, I was so <laughs> This is the Wii all over again. <laughs> a single-use device. <laughs> but it's crazy because it could not be more simple other than having, like, just a sticker on it that says, press here. It's the only place you can press on the whole phone. His allure of intuitive design is what made him ecstatic when he and his Apple team were invited to Xerox in the early 80s. And Xerox had developed a computer screen. It was the first one that had like a mouse with a cursor that you could move around and click. Computers before then, you had to know these certain like codes to type in and boot it up. And that's what every every computer screen looked like you had to have experience like as a hacker. Right. But this was the first like intuitive desktop. It looked like your desktop in your office where you take this file, you open this file here, you drag that one there. And he was like out of his mind excited to then steal that idea and make billions of dollars. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say the most intuitive thing he discovered was stealing. (laughs) Lesson three, don't tell us what it is, tell us what it means. 
So this is a point we already hit in our Made to Stick episode, but we want to hit it again just because Steve Jobs is such a great example of it. So Steve was once in this argument with one of his engineers because he was trying to get a computer to boot up 10 seconds faster. And the engineer said, okay, it can't be done. So Steve says, could you do it if someone's life depended on it? And the engineer is like, uh, yeah, maybe. And then so Steve, Steve says, put a gun into the guy's <laughs> mouth. Now can you Yours do Yours does, mother. <laughs> so he says, yeah, I could do it if someone's life depends on it. Steve comes back and he says, here's how many computers we expect to sell. An extra 10 seconds of booting up comes out to 100 lifetimes lost every year. So the engineer goes away. He comes back. The computer now boots up 28 seconds faster. So one of the lessons here is it is so persuasive to threaten to kill 100 people. It's a classic sales tactic. (laughs) But another lesson is if you want to convince someone, don't just tell them what the thing is, tell them what it means. So in this instance, you know, what it is is a 10-second delay, but what it means is 100 lifetimes lost each year. Once that engineer understood, you know, the meaning of what he was saying, he was much more persuaded by that argument. That would be so funny if that really wasn't a one-off because then Steve Jobs, he, he like, <laughs> he walks into the cafeteria and he's like, oh man, I thought I had a good He job. walks into Pixar and says, if Woody isn't 10% more charismatic, a hundred people will die. <laughs> man, you just Steve Jobs to me. <laughs> That's my joke. You had the idea to tell a good joke, and then I told one. (laughs) And then you knew what to do with it more than I did. (laughs) I'm not going to come up with one now. That was such a great (laughs) metaphor for Apple. But another example of that, which we also discussed in our Made to Stick episode, was the iPod. You know, what it is is an MP3 player, but what it means and the way... Steve presented it was a thousand songs in your pocket. You immediately understand what it means for your life. What it means is that you now had the opportunity to get sick of your favorite songs (laughs) way faster. (laughs) All right. Lesson four, kick most of your cooks out of the kitchen. I say most because Steve Jobs had his biggest successes when he was Working essentially just with one other person. So I guess kick all but one cook out of your kitchen. When Steve Jobs was fired, it was run by a bunch of cooks and they made way too much garbage and they almost ran themselves into the ground. But so the pairings that worked were initially Apple was started by Steve Jobs and the Waz. Steve Wozniak, who created the Apple and the Apple II. And then later on, Steve Jobs is thrown out of the company. He comes back and he designs the iMac with a guy named Jonathan Ive, a designer. And it was essentially just the two of them. Jonathan Ive had had a team, but he was the main designer. And he would create um, mock-ups of products that that he would then bring to Steve. And then the two of them would essentially just hang out together every day while Steve went over and made notes. That was their way of collaborating. Steve Jobs and and John Lasseter, who essentially started Pixar and got Toy Story off the ground together. I feel like I see a pattern of this in the arts of two people creating something, not with gratuitous feedback or polling data or market research, but just two people who both believe in something and who are there to serve as checks and balances for each other. Like, name me a, a solo beetle who creates 
rated an album as good as Abbey Road. I mean, other than Ringo Starr, like other like, than the star of Thomas the Train. <sighs> sure, I will say All Things Must Pass by George is a pretty solid post Beatles album, but it's because they wouldn't let him use any of his songs on the group album, so he just had an accumulation <laughs> of great songs. Well, and I, I he know. said it was like he was musically constipated. <laughs> So when we look in the arts, we see these these pairings, John and Paul, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who churn out South Park episodes six days at a time. No exaggeration yeah. when it takes an episode and of by themselves, and Morty or The Simpsons nine months per episode to produce. By themselves, the Beatles were not as good. Like Paul without John got just a lot more bubblegum in his composition, sure. and John without Paul got shot. <laughs> I think I do want to. Uh, you you, you want to just continue this trend of talking about Johns who have been assassinated. So I want to I want to agree with part of this point, and I think I want to push back against a different part of it. I definitely agree with you on the value of uh, collaboration and on having someone who gives candid feedback, that kind of thing. Um, Kahneman and Tversky, this pair of psychologists, talked about how normally you have an idea and it may take you years to understand the full like implications of that idea. But when you have a good creative partner, often they can understand those implications immediately and it just tightens your creative feedback cycle. So I'm definitely on board as far as that goes. I think I want to push back a little bit on this idea that most or all of Jobs' accomplishments happened in these teams of two. Um, just because he was actually pretty noteworthy at Apple for what he called deep collaboration, which was, you know, at a lot of companies, a product gets just like passed from department to department. So first engineering will take a stab at something and then design has to figure out, okay, how do we take what they made and design it so it looks nice? And then manufacturing takes it and it has to ask, okay, how do we actually make this? And then marketing and distribution has to ask, okay, how do we actually sell this? Whereas at Apple, Apple was very noteworthy for all of those processes happening concurrently so that they'd come out with a really like nice integrated product. So I, I'm worried that focusing just on the collaborative pairs ends up being a little too reductive in terms of what Apple was making. Well, I feel like in arguing against my point, you're actually strengthening it because what's happening right now okay. is that you are pushing back against me. So <laughs> checkmate. We are making a great podcast. I'm the Steve Jobs. And you are... You say checkmate so much that I do have to ask, do you play chess? <laughs> I guarantee you I can beat Ron Weasley in a game. But I, I see what you're saying about the broad collaboration, but I'm talking just more about the just the pure ideas when it was him and Steve Wozniak, they were creating this, the first like user-friendly personal computer. When he was creating the iMac, it was just basically him, Jonathan Ives. I know that there is, you know, 9,000 people under them that they're standing on top of. But ultimately, it was Steve Jobs coming back to the company with this idea and choosing one person to to work with in a room. I think part of the reason I push back against this is that it talks about even in the book over and over again, how an employee would pitch Steve an idea. Steve would say that idea is crap. And then he would come back a day or two later and pitch it to them as though it were his idea. And so I think he already had so much of a tendency to make it this single point of focus, like he was the source of all of Apple's innovation that I think I kind of bristle at any kind of characterization of him being the brain, heart, and guts of the company and everyone else just being kind of like a pawn, you know? Yeah, I could see that. But he was also like, if he didn't come back, there wouldn't be an iMac, there wouldn't be an iPad, there wouldn't be an iPod. Oh, I agree. So 
I uh, yeah. I think what happened actually is that Steve Jobs passed away. They wrote this book, and everyone is like, "I gave him that idea. I gave him that <laughs> idea." And he actually did come up with all of those ideas with every single idea, <laughs> everything, the thousands of them, and everyone's just bitter. So with <laughs> this idea of too many cooks in the kitchen, we have all of these very successful parents. I would also say Jim Gaffigan and Jeannie Gaffigan, his wife, who. Yeah. Both of them write his act, and he's massively successful. There's also been something like six or seven married couples who have jointly won Nobel Prizes. Interesting. Most recently, it was uh, Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee who won it for economics. I know. So the Atlantis, <laughs> if you recall, have you ever seen the uh, Disney movie Atlantis, The Lost Empire? Yeah. You know that movie that they ended up making like rides and toys of that all of us had as children? <laughs> Sell a yeah. ton of merch. I love, it's very meta of them to make a movie that itself was forgotten. <laughs> the writers credited on that movie are Tab Murphy, Kirk Wise, Gary Trousdale, Bryce Zabel, Jackie <laughs> Zabel, David Reynolds, and Joss Whedon. So in the book, the author says, no one could have pulled off the Macintosh, nor would it likely have emerged from focus groups and committees. Uh, on the day that he unveiled the Macintosh, a reporter from Popular Science asked Steve Jobs what type of market research had been done. And Steve Jobs scoffed and said, did Alexander Graham Bell do any market research? before he invented the telephone. <laughs> All right, lesson five, focus on total excellence. So there's this quote from one of the Apple execs, Bud Tribble. He said, if we're going to make things in our lives, we might as well make them beautiful, which is a fun thing I like to say to parents of an ugly baby. <laughs> one of the themes in this book is just commitment to kind of this total excellence. So Steve Jobs' dad, when he would make a cabinet, he would make sure that the back of the cabinet was beautiful, even though no one would ever see it because it was against a wall. So Steve brought a similar ethos to Apple's work. He started making sure that the insides of all the machines were beautiful, even though no customer would ever see that part. And there's actually this Apple motto where they say, every Apple machine should look beautiful and every Apple cord should look like it's been tortured. <laughs> 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 All right, time for our random fact round. So one thing from the book, when Steve Wozniak was a teenager, he made a fake bomb and hid it in a locker, and the principal found it and heroically sprinted with it out to the football field and pulled the wires out to save all the students. And I think that is the funniest, <laughs> saddest thing. Like this poor man goes through this terrible ordeal. He's so brave, all because of just this dumb, genius teenager. It's also crazy, too, because I hope that the bomb squad showed up and they're like, you could have just left it on the field. <laughs> So here are some of the bands and songs that were on Steve Jobs' iPod. Pretty much every Dylan album before 1975, so only like 130 of them. <laughs> uh, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Joan Baez, whom he dated for a while. Wasn't it weird that part where they said that maybe he dated Joan Baez only because she had dated Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't there something just like a little messed up about that? <laughs> yes. Uh, the song Wooly Bully <laughs> was on it. Um, and then such a funny... Famously by The Wiggles. Such a funny assortment. Uh, 10,000 Maniacs, Jimi Hendrix, Alicia Keys, John Mayer, Green Day, Talking Heads, Bach, 
Yo-Yo Ma, who he had play at his funeral. And then apparently he was close to having Eminem on his iPod, but Eminem never quite made the cut. He even went to a concert. (laughs) But he said, this is a quote, Eminem's growing on me. I respect him as an artist, but I can't relate to his values the way that I relate to Dylan's. (laughs) I was like, oh, really? (laughs) Next, Steve Jobs was almost adopted by a lawyer and his wife, but they backed out at the last second when they found out he was a boy. And I call those parents the Pete Best of adoption. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I want to talk about next time is how often Bill Gates was completely wrong. (laughs) Sure makes you question his instincts on malaria, doesn't it? He was furious that Apple even brought back Steve Jobs in the first place. He told them that that would be a disaster. And I don't know if that was like out of fear or what he actually thought. (laughs) But when the iMac was... It does kind of feel like Vader being furious at the rebellion for bringing back Luke. (laughs) Uh, When the iMac was announced, Bill Gates, he painted uh, a PC red, and he said that the iMac would be a passing fad. And he was just just a little (laughs) off about that one. I wonder how Microsoft's doing. Let me go bing it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember the password to my MSN account. (laughs) Man, Explorer is running so slow today. In Santa Clara, like the heart of the Silicon Valley, there's a mall called Valley Fair. There's an Apple store there that I used to go to in the early 2000s, and a Microsoft store opened up across the... Bill Gates said that the the Apple store was a dumb idea, but then this Microsoft (laughs) store opens literally right across from the Apple store. I imagine that whatever like H&M was there before was sort of like those people who got on the internet like in the early 90s and they just registered every obvious domain name like Ford.com, GeneralMills.com and then sold them to those people for a billion dollars. There's no way Microsoft didn't pay 10 times as much as they needed to be to be across. And it was, I don't know if you've ever seen one, but it looks exactly like the Apple Store and the people are even wearing like the necklaces, the the laminates. I imagine the back was like instead of a genius bar is like the smart people pub. <laughs> they used to be gifted stand. The, the Mensa half house. <laughs> Speaking of those location things, someone once told me this. I've never researched if it's true. If it's not true, don't tell me because I'm much happier believing it. Apparently, McDonald's will spend millions of dollars researching like the optimal locations for its restaurants. And then after all that, Subway will just buy a spot right next to McDonald's. I've always wondered, speaking of like (laughs) chicken and the egg, what came first, the Denny's or the dirty motel next to it? (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Steve Jobs. Number one, make stuff you like, aka don't pander. Number two, intuition is better than intelligence, a quote from the man himself. Number three, don't tell us what it is, tell us what it means. Number four, kick most of your cooks out of the kitchen. And number five, focus on total excellence. And number six, it's okay to keep Tim Cook in the kitchen. (laughs) 